Hello, friends, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, the weekly podcast where we take a deep dive into the scripture text for this Sunday and give you the chance to learn God's story so that you can live, love, and lead a life following Jesus here at St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Orlando and in your lives. My name is Melissa Cooper. I serve as one of the pastors here at St. Luke's, and I am excited to guide you into this next week of our Lenten season. We are in our second week of Lent, following Jesus on the road to the cross. Now we again this week find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark, our first Gospel account. But we have jumped much later in the story. Like the Gospel of Mark itself, too, we are moving all too quickly toward the cross. We're in Mark 8 today, and we see a picture of one of Jesus' interactions with his disciple, Peter. Now, for some context for the Gospel of Mark, we touched on this briefly last week in our lecture, but one of the key key features of Mark's Gospel is what is known as the Messianic Secret. Mark's focus as a writer is on you as the audience, and they want you to be in on something that many of the characters in the story do not quite seem to get. While Mark from the very beginning declares who Jesus is without equivocation, the people who we meet in our gospel stories, especially the disciples, always seem to miss the fullness of who Jesus is and what he is actually there to do. Now, they still follow him. They still devote themselves to him, even without fully understanding the depth of his purpose. Now, this could be its own lesson for those of us who really need to understand and see that as an essential to our faith, right? But that's a different different lesson in a different podcast. But there are moments, key moments throughout the gospel where Jesus not only reveals and names his identity, especially for the disciples, but he also gives them a prediction of the passion narrative to come. Now, Mark chapter 8 gives us a scene that puts us in the shoes of the disciples themselves, especially Peter and his own struggle with Jesus' identity and fate. Now, while our text for this Sunday is the last section of the chapter, we can't just take that by itself. We need to start a couple of stories earlier and take the whole chapter together to really set ourselves up to see the full impact of what Jesus says to Peter, which can be a bit shocking. The chapter begins with a familiar story um, of Jesus feeding 4,000 people with just a few loaves of bread. Now, he's already a chapter earlier fed 5,000 people in exactly the same way. But just a scene later, the disciples find themselves in a boat with Jesus and lamenting that they now don't have enough bread to feed themselves. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 8, starting with verse 17. Jesus knew what they were discussing and said, Why are you talking about the fact that you don't have any bread? Don't you grasp what has happened? Don't you understand? Are your, your hearts so resistant to what God is doing? Don't you have eyes? Why can't you see? Don't you have ears? Why can't you hear? Don't you remember? When I broke five loaves of bread for those 5,000 people, how many baskets full of leftovers did you gather? And they answered, Twelve. And when I broke seven loaves of bread for those 4,000 people, how many baskets full of leftovers did you gather? They answered, seven. And Jesus said to them, and you still don't understand? Ugh, 
we can all re- resonate with Jesus here, right? If we have ever just had something that we were so passionate about and, and those around us, maybe it was our children or our parents or our, uh, students or friends who just didn't get something that was so clear to us. Jesus says, and you still don't understand. They can name what they have seen with their own eyes twice. They've seen Jesus' power to transform. They have seen the results when he is there and present and when they follow his guidance and yet. (laughs) Our next story in this chapter is when Jesus does something arguably, arguably even more incredible and people bring a blind man to Jesus to be healed. So we'll pick up in verse 23. Taking the blind man's hand, Jesus led him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on the man, he asked him, Do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees, only they're walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again. He looked with his eyes wide open. His sight was restored and he could see everything clearly. And then Jesus sent him home saying, Don't go into the village. Now, we're doing all of this because like Mark, I'm going to give you the spoilers ahead of time. So that when we see the the scene in a moment that is our focus for the week, you already know what you're looking for. Because first, we see Jesus performing a miracle with objects, with bread and with fish. Now we see Jesus performing a miracle with a human. And this miracle, after he has expressed exasperation with the disciples not quite getting what's going on, this miracle story that gets put here takes two steps for the blind man to see fully. This is not a coincidence that this story is inserted here. For this one to be kind of the Oreo cream between Jesus' seemingly exasperated question of, and you still don't understand, and then the encounter we're about to get with Peter. The blind man here, like everything else in Mark's gospel, is telling us something about discipleship. It doesn't happen all at once. We don't get it all at the same time. It is a process. It is a journey. It's the reason last week we started to follow. Everything is a process. And so we get this first encounter with Peter in the next scene. Starting in verse 27, I'm reading specifically from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus is checking in. Do you get it yet? And he seems to find Peter's response that he is the Messiah acceptable. All right, so let's take that whole context in mind. And now we are coming to what our actual text for this week is. This is our focus text for this week, chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, beginning in verse 31. Now, this is one of three explicit passion predictions Jesus makes, where he says specifically what is to come. He shifts from that question at a time, he shifts from the question that he has just posed to the disciples of who do you say that I am, to a time of spelling out the answer. 
of what it means to him. So Peter has said, you are the Messiah. And so Jesus says, all right, here's what that means. And this is where we pick up in verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now we have to pause here. Our text will continue for this week all the way to verse 38, but we cannot leave this seemingly over-the-top outburst from Jesus go by naming without naming what we see here. And we see first the confident Peter naming who he knows Jesus to be, which is the Messiah. Now this word means anointed one, someone set aside for a particular role. We see the term used in the Old Testament related to the roles of prophet and priest and king which we know as readers on the other side of the story, that Jesus is anointed for all three, of course. But when Jesus names the implications of that anointing, of that role as Messiah, Peter protests. His confident, upbeat declaration of Jesus' identity is hopeful, but Jesus ruins the mood when he starts talking about suffering and death. Because here, Jesus uses an even more specific term for himself the Son of Man. And that actually comes with more implications than Peter's definition of Messiah. Now what we see here is that Jesus and Peter do agree. They agree on his identity as Messiah, but there is incongruence on what exactly that is going to mean. Because Peter seems to attach significance to the title of Messiah in a way that expressly does not include suffering. And Jesus' entire agenda for this passion prediction is to clarify the yes, but of Peter's declaration of him as Messiah. Yes, but maybe not like you're expecting. The term son of man is a biblical and theological topic that could be its own series of podcasts. But for our purposes today, here's a few pieces of context. It's a term that is found in a variety of places in the Hebrew scriptures, but specifically we see it in the apocalyptic text of Daniel that provides a framework for the one who would return as the judge of the world. Jesus adds a dimension to this, though, that this judgment isn't going to happen from a distance. Naming himself as the Son of Man means that that the Son of Man is going to suffer alongside humanity to experience the reality of the human experience. And it's this inclusion of the element of the Messiah as servant who suffers, which Mark is making connections here to the Isaiah prophecy again, that throws Peter and likely the other disciples for a bit of a loop. Because none of them want a suffering Messiah. In fact, We actually know that Jesus himself doesn't want to suffer. We see that in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, even when his time has drawn near. He's not rejoicing in the idea that this is his path, that he is going to be on a path that leads to suffering. And honestly, if I I put myself in Jesus' shoes, that may be even the reason for his seemingly aggressive response to Peter. It's not that he's rebuking Peter for wrong belief or even disbelief. He's holding Peter back so that he's not tempted to turn away from the path that he knows he has to be on. 
Because remember, the character of Satan, this one that is so often misunderstood, is, is one of testing or tempting, of accusing, not of evil and darkness in the way that we've been conditioned to think of that character. In a way, he's saying, saying Peter, please don't push me off course. I know. I agree. This isn't what I want either. And you drawing me into this pulls me off of my message. Because Peter understands exactly what Jesus is saying. He just doesn't like it. And Jesus isn't upset with Peter. In some ways, he's probably commiserating with him. But he needs deeply for his closest partners in ministry to help him stay on mission. And so he continues, clarifying again what a life of discipleship looks like to not only disciples, but also to others in the crowd, which is a new development. This messianic secret begins to become less secret now that he has made this first passion prediction, now that he has named what it really means to be the Messiah or the Son of Man. So it also becomes less of a secret what a life of following him is going to look like too. Let's pick up with verse 34. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any wish to come after me, to follow me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, the phrase, take up your cross, is, is all too commonplace in our modern day, right? It's, it can be used even as a joke, um, sometimes used as shorthand for deal with it, or yeah, life's hard. But for us in, in our modern reading context, the cross doesn't come to mind immediately as a feared tool of political execution. We most often see it as a warm and treasured symbol. And we also know that the rest of the story is that Jesus dying on the cross and he's then resurrected to inaugurate liberation for all people, right? We know the whole story of what one particular cross meant. But Jesus' hearers would have been closer to the cross as a public square lynching tree. So we have to put ourselves in a different context to hear what exactly he's implying. And then we see why Peter might be reacting in such a dramatic way, too. Jesus is telling those who have committed to follow him, his disciples, and those who seem interested in following him, the crowd, what that actually means. Not only does it mean his suffering as Messiah, it also means that they then follow in his footsteps. And that is something that is really essential to the kingdom for Mark's gospel. Mark doesn't leave out the stories of crowds fed and people healed and the resurrection victory, but Mark, and therefore Mark's Jesus, is not afraid to name truthfully what the path to that resurrection entails, both for him and for us. One theologian says it this way, Jesus does not suffer and die because suffering is good. The necessity of the suffering comes from the way Jesus lives. 
a series of actions that pay no heed to social and religious norms, a life that reaches out to those who are ostracized, like we see in Mark 5, that reaches out to those who are unclean, like we also see in Mark 5, or to those who are marginalized, like we see in Mark 7. Mark has already profiled this suffering in the story of John the Baptist's death in chapter 6. John is arrested and dies because he ran afoul of those in power. Suffering that results from the ways that God's kingdom does not comport with human dominion is very different from prescribing suffering for its own sake. Suffering is a topic that we generally don't handle well, right? The problem of suffering is one that theologians wrestle with probably more deeply than any other. But like with everything else, Mark is not trying to over-dramatize the message. Mark is simply stating facts. And like Peter, we get to choose how we respond. Maybe this week we need to imagine Jesus asking us the same question. Who do you say that I am? Because in asking Peter to give witness to who he is, he's asking Peter to think about it himself as well. Because the Messiah comes in a specific place and time to a specific group of people. And Peter has to look at his own location of place and time and reevaluate what it means to live in the midst of empire. He has to wonder, why is Jesus asking this question of me now? By answering the question of Jesus' identity, Peter shows us something about his own beliefs and his understandings. And so if we also answer this question about Jesus' identity, we're also answering a question about our own identity. We can't name who Jesus is if we say we follow him without revealing something about who we are. And who we are and how we live inversely reveals who we have decided Jesus to be. And who would others say that Jesus is because they've known us? How are we hearing in this season Jesus' truth of the path of discipleship? And how does that mean that we are speaking truth about Jesus? Not just with our own words, but with our own paths. Jesus shows us that he always chooses to show love by speaking the truth. It would have been much easier to, to hide the suffering pieces so that, that the disciples didn't get riled up or worried. But he wanted to be sure they knew what was coming for him and for them. But Jesus chooses to show love by speaking truth, even when it's not what we would want to hear. But he also doesn't only speak once. He speaks again and again just like the healing of the blind man, because we need to hear it again and again. And we have to be unafraid, like Peter, to sometimes get it wrong when we speak up. We have to be able to name what it is that we do see and what we do believe so that we can then give a chance for our teacher to correct us as needed. Now, next week, we're going to move out of the Gospel of Mark. So I want to leave us, too, with this thought about Jesus in relation to Mark's messianic secret. This is purely Melissa's I wonder. But I wonder if he kept telling people to keep his identity secret because he knew they weren't going to get it right if they just started telling people. He knew that the fullness of who he was was not going to be well conveyed if they just talked about it. 
So we just kept showing them. So maybe there's something in that for us to learn as well. What does speaking truth look like for us? What does naming truthfully who Jesus is look like for each of us in our words, but also maybe our lives? Thank you.